Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Andy Alexander. It's nice to be back with you again after an excellent week's of current events news with our discourse episode. We're so thankful to be able to bring scholars together to talk about the latest issues in religious studies as they appear in headlines throughout the world. This week's episode, I believe, is one that you did the interview for, Andy. Can you tell us a little bit about what we would expect to hear? Yes. In today's episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mitsutoshi Hori about his recent book, The Category of Religion in Contemporary Japan, Shukyo and Temple Buddhism. And in a way, building on our Classification Matters discourse episode from last week, Dr. Hori talks about his own work and how shifting from approaching Temple Buddhism as a religion and instead examining how and when it came to be categorized as a religion, he was able to learn more about the ways in which the category of religion was used specifically for legal and political purposes, particularly in governance and in regulating what counts as religion and how religion is understood in contemporary Japan. So it's a really great example of exactly why classification matters. That sounds excellent. Let's take it away. Hello, I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is Dr. Mitsutoshi Hori, who is a professor at Shumei University in Japan, but he currently works overseas at their campus in the UK, Chaucer College, as principal. Dr. Hori's research focuses on the foundation of modern Euro-American colonial categories, such as religion, and examines how these categories authorize and naturalize specific norms in a variety of post-colonial contexts. Dr. Hori is the guest editor of a forthcoming special issue of the journal Religions titled Critical Approaches to Religion in Japan, Case Studies and Redescriptions. And he has a second monograph that will soon be published titled Religion and Secular Categories and Sociology, Decolonizing the Modern Myth with Paul Grave Macmillan. But today we are here to talk about your first book, The Category of Religion in Contemporary Japan, Shukyo and Temple Buddhism, which was published in 2018. Dr. Hori, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. I wonder if you'd be able to kick off our conversation with a little information and background on the predominant discourses about religion in Japan and the ways in which your book intervenes in those conversations, because it strikes me that this is a bit of a new approach to these discussions. So what led you to developing this this particular argument and, and this book for religious studies in Japan? I think probably the best starting point is just to tell you the, the background, you know, the why I end up thinking of writing this book. Um, I studied temple Buddhism of Japan uh, when I was doing PhD in England. Yeah, I studied how temple Buddhism exists in modern Japan, 
uh, or contemporary Japan. And I framed, originally framed, my analysis of temple Buddhism in a kind of secularization discourse. At that time, you know, I was assumed, you know, temple Buddhism is a religion. You know, Japan has been modernized last, you know, 150 years. And modernization always accompanied with secularization, which is the decline of religion. So temple Buddhism as a religion, how is it like in so-called secularized Japan? So that was my kind of the frame I assumed. Then I did my PhD, and then eventually I framed my study as the study of deprofessionalization of you know, temple Buddhism. Uh, basically, I analyzed, studied how the notion of specialism eroded, you know, in contemporary Japan. For example, you know, uh, what, what is the specialty of Buddhist priests? You know, there are yeah, lots of kind of Buddhist scholars in Buddhist priesthood, but at the same time, there are lots of lay people uh, having a specialist knowledge about, you know, Buddhist doctrine. So, and then also the main source of income for many priests is actually performing certain rituals. Again, in this area, there are lots of lay uh, Buddhist organizations performing their own Buddhist rituals, not requiring priests. So I eventually framed the temple Buddhism in this profession. There is an erosion of specialisms. They cannot monopolize Buddhist rituals or something special about them. There are a lot of competitors. So that's what my thesis, but it is kind of packaged by secularization thesis. Yeah. So after my PhD, I actually, you know, I got my PhD, so that was good. <laughs> um, but after my PhD, I tried to publish one article out of my thesis. And then I wrote article and then I submitted it. And then I think I had a kind of three reviewers and then, you know, each reviewer gave me feedback. And then one of the reviewers actually highlighted the point, actually, I take the notion of religion for granted. and. That really kind of hit me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Because, you know, I, I highlighted in my thesis, for example, you know, how the idea of religion is so difficult to define. Mm-hmm. And depends on how you define religion, you know, you can narrate the story of secularization. But if you define religion in broadly, secularization never happens. But although I highlighted that sort of argument, I still used the word religion to categorize Buddhism in Japan, yeah? Yeah. And also the packaged the idea of deprofessionalization in a sense of uh, secularization, as if authentic religion is diminished. Mm-hmm. Temple Buddhism, or Buddhist priests are the so-called religious profession, and their religious skills and knowledge has been deprofessionalized, yeah. Right. Still, you know, I was thinking, you know, Buddhism is religion, yeah. Then I get into the older literature of critical religions, which I didn't know until that time. And it was kind of eye-opening moment for me. And then, yeah, actually, probably the more interesting way of analyzing temple Buddhism is actually including this idea of religion in my analysis as well. So just moving away from the assumption of Buddhism as religion, 
let's just analyze temple Buddhism as it is. And then there are a lot of things going on, you know, the history of Buddhism, etc. But, you know, for example, temple Buddhism exists before the notion of religion. Notion of religion arrived to Japan in the late 19th century. Then Buddhism became classified as religion. And then in order to exist in the newly reified realm of religion, temple Buddhism have to change themselves to fit to the definition. When it doesn't fit, there was conflict. So I tried to, after PhD, by reading critical religion works, you know, literature in the field, I realized actually it's better to frame my study in different way in which we include this issue of categorization in analysis. So let's move away from this notion of religion and then let's include that into my analysis. And then I study temple Buddhism as temple Buddhism. Then I include the element how this notion of religion giving all sorts of effects, how Temple Buddhism operates in society. Temple Buddhism are now categorized as religion. So what is the consequence of this categorization? In theory, for example, in the, in the legal uh, discourse, for example, most of the Buddhist temple in Japan is so-called religious cooperation, which is a kind of legal category. And the religious cooperation has defined activities they can do. So that limits what Buddhist temple can operate, the, their parameter of you know, uh, activities. But it doesn't necessarily fit what Buddhist temple has been doing, you know, throughout history, and also what priests themselves want to do. So I started looking at those tension and the negotiation with the category of religion, rather than assuming Buddhism as religion. And then, yeah, many temples may probably work better if they categorize themselves differently. But probably they don't think like that because people in general, you know, assume Buddhism as a religion. So this kind of notion of, you know, Buddhism as a religion limit, you know, what they can do. So that was my argument. Yeah. But that was now very different from, you know, how I argued in my PhD thesis. So for me, it took about 10 years to just reframe everything in this way. Yeah. So that my book is kind of product of my post PhD exploration. Yeah. That's really wonderful, though. And I think that's the great story of how we, we do tend to have this understanding of religion that we take for granted in its application, right, to, to different things. And you've gone back and rethought your entire doctoral project, mm-hmm. which is really amazing and would take a lot of just questioning your own ideas and, and, and developing your own thoughts and analyses in very different ways. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I think once you manage to get away from that category, it's become more flexible uh, for me to think about other things. It's, and also I realized in many different academic disciplines or sub-disciplines, you know, many scholars are actually doing it already. The same thing. Women's studies, for example. Absolutely. It is not a study to define what women are. Exactly. It is actually the study of the category of women. How, you know, the notion of women, you know, this kind of gender binary mm-hmm. or binary of, you know, two sexes, yeah, influence or affect, you know, our everyday life, how we think, what we do, how it can be sometimes oppressive, you know. And then black studies, for example. Yeah, this is not, a, you know, a study to define what the blacks are, you know. It, it is about 
this notion, the study of this category, how this category invented, how it was mm-hmm. applied, how it, it was utilized, how it uh, oppressed people, you know, and how we should negotiate, how we should fight against, you know, isn't it? So, yeah, actually, we are doing it. So, but somehow, when we talk about religion, we still not to get to that sort of stage. Somehow, we, we tend to assume, you know, something is a religion. Yes. But I think once we move away from this assumption and then start actually studying how actually we use these categories, I think we can uncover a lot of different things. Oh, I completely agree. That, that, that is kind of my uh, yeah, way of understanding these issues. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Mm. You know, you touched briefly on how temple Buddhism, of course, predates the category of religion in Japan. And then how in reading for the uses of this category, you were able to explore different effects of the category of religion in society, particularly the legal effects of, of this category. There's a particularly interesting thing about the like the public benefit aspect of the, mm-hmm. the koeki, is that it? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Could you just walk us through a little more of that? Yeah. Um, yeah, in, in the legal discourse, religion is defined as something to do with so-called public benefit. Uh, you know, there is a notion of you know, religion should be voluntary association, which benefit the public. Yeah, and also it's this category of religion is separated from politics, economics, and also the commercial businesses. And then that defines what Buddhist temple, for example, you know, any organization exists as a religious corporation. This is again legal category, you know, incorporated as a religion, you know, can do. Yeah, so they have to negotiate with the idea of, you know, this legal definition, legal notion of religion, and then, you know, other Buddhist, Buddhist temple, you know, what they can do, what they cannot do. At the moment, their main source of income tend to be from funerals. And also, you know, the maintenance of graveyards, for example. Is funeral graveyards religious? <laughs> you know, this is a big question. Yeah, there are commercial industry, you know, operating uh, funeral businesses. But Buddhist priests, Buddhist temples, somehow they have to create the discourse or narrative which naturalize, you know, their, their activity as religious. In exchange of their funeral service, you know, they, they get a payment, for example, yeah? Uh, but they have to define their receiving or payment as offering rather than they, they cannot, for example, as a norm, they tend not to show the price of their service. Because if they show the price against that kind of service they provide, they take the risk of define, being defined as a commercial. Right. Yeah. So there are all sorts of negotiations they have to do. And then many organizations, for example, you know, uh, rent out some of their spare rooms for, you know, the local clubs and social clubs, etc. cetera. Uh, sometimes they do their own, yeah, they, they organize their own social club. And sometimes they, they ask for the membership fee, yeah. But is it offering or, you know, is it something that income against the commercial activity? Uh, what... Also, things they sell, when they sell amulet, 
is it again commercial activity or is it so-called religious activity? <laughs> you know, right. The things are really vague. You know, not, there is no definition. You know, uh, clear definition between you know what is commercial, what is religious. But they they have to create their own way of distinguishing it, and then somehow they have to make agreement with tax office. You know. Yeah. So they, they have everyday struggle of defining themselves as religion in the absence of definition, but kind of vague notion of, you know, the religion shouldn't be, shouldn't be commercial. Also something benefit by the public. Yeah. Many temple now, in order to be more explicit about benefits for the wider public, they host public events like a concert and or festivals, etc. But some critic, you know, tend to say, oh, this is, you know, not really Buddhism, etc. But, you know, <laughs> but th- there is always that sort of tension. Um, but th- then police have to define, yeah, you know, you may not think this is pure Buddhism, but in, a, in a, the kind of wider, much wider sense, you know, the fundamentally Buddhism teaches, you know, uh, benefits uh, all human beings. So therefore, you know, this is what we do. And there, there are lots of sort of that sort of discussion going on. I would imagine that the critiques then, as you mentioned, are that of an inauthentic understanding of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think common critique of temple Buddhism is priests are uh, earning too much money, that sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Some temple temple have a uh, you know make it probably huge profit, but because they are so called public benefit organization, they cannot distribute their profit, you know, uh, to the shareholder, holder, for example. <laughs> they have to they have to invest their, their profit for the public benefit, you know. Uh, I think that is a kind of a misconception. But on average, I, I think many temples are just surviving. Many priests are, you know, having a second job, etc. And also some priests, because, you know, the number of temples are limited and then there are, you know, lots of priests who haven't got their own temples. So those priests now, for example, you know, some of them uh, established their own commercial company and dispatching licensed priests in, in a much cheaper prices to funerals and other you know ceremonies. So now there's a tension. Yeah, here a temple providing certain services as a religious you know corporation, but here commercial company providing the exactly the same services at much cheaper prices and. Commercial company, you know, so-called religious organization doing the exactly the you know, same business. So there is always this dilemma. Almost, you know, feels like, you know, if temple just quit being categorized as religion, and then if they just, you know, establish commercial company, things may be much easier for them to do, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of, you know, notion of uh, religion preventing, you know, priest exploring, you know, doing other things, yeah. So, you know, many, many temple actually, you know, if many successful temple, for example, establishing independent charity organization or non-profit organization, you know, organization independent from the temple to do other things, you know, which temple cannot do because they are so-called religious organization. Generally, you know, they, they have to negotiate different category all the time. Yeah. I'm thinking about this also kind of from my own American context, how, it, at least for Japan, is religion 
generally understood? How is it generally defined? Because of course, here in the US, the emphasis is on like individual beliefs. And the reason I'm asking this is because I wonder what that category looks like in a Japanese context. Not that it's, of course, removed from others, as you know, but the general understandings of that and then how that ties into the public benefit aspect. Because to me, it seems that in this sense, religion is less privatized and more social. Could you explain a little about that? Yeah, there is different meaning of religions in a, in a kind of different layer of discourse. In, in, in a kind of the everyday language, the religion is almost like a representation of something weird. Yeah, When they say religion means something very dogmatic, something uh, antisocial, you know, something, you know, committing too much. Yeah. So people tend to use the word religion in, in a kind of derogatory way. But in the legal discourse or, you know, intellectual discourse, there is a the religion often means something very kind of Protestant oriented, yeah. you know. That privatized, yeah. Something privatized, you know, everyone have, you know, fundamental belief and that is religion, yeah. So it's not necessarily manifested as an organization or, you know, kind of group or movement. It's very personal. And another discourse of religion is actually continuous since the beginning of modern Japan, beginning of the arrival of, you know, term religion in Japan. It, it was initially utilized as a category of governance by the government. Uh, those groups or traditions defined as religion are supposed to be serving to the government in exchange of freedom. So initially it was Christianity, Buddhism, and very specific uh, sect of Shintoism. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they served the government to support, you know, government kind of drive to modernization. But they were given the freedom to practice or, you know, keep their doctrine. So that was the origin of, you know, religion as a public benefit. And then, you know, other groups which challenged the government, they are labeled as superstition. And then they were, you know, a- any kind of value orientation you know, outside of this legitimate religion are, you know, subject of uh, persecution. And then post-war legal framework inherited that pre-war notion of, you know, religion as public benefit. That is how in post-war Japan, temples and shrines were incorporated in that principle. But that is a kind of very specifically legal definition of religion. Right. Yeah. 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 And then I think tax office, charity commission, you know, the equivalent of charity commission in Japan, that sort of organization, they, they, they operate, you know, in, in that sort of level. But I think if you're looking at the various, you know, court cases, you know, the, about freedom of religion, etc., I think the Protestant, you know, notion of religion, you know, still influenced there. But in a more public discourse, very popular, you know, uh, literature or, you know, news media, I think very delicately, you know, uh, notion of religion is still, you know, prevalent. Religion is something, another word for, you know, the weirdness and antisocial or, you know, cult, for example. I wonder if you could explain or give us a little sense of how you have applied this critical approach to your own analysis of social identities of temple Buddhists. Like this is something that within the field of religious studies gets a, a lot of pushback as wanting to do away with the category of religion or, you know, not taking it seriously or, or dismissing experiences, what have you. I think probably, I don't know, for me, the 
one way of clarifying this is, for example, just imagine you know we we are studying uh, studying race, yeah, and then we study each other, for example, uh, or you know, I study you, you know, your racial identity, and then I might think you know you are belong to the group conventionally categorized as white, yeah, but when I interview you or you know when I when if I study your life, I have to put my category aside you know when i study your life when i analyze you know your narrative i shouldn't project my assumption of you know you as white yeah and then i should include you know how you negotiate you know you kind of racial categorization you know um in your life yeah and, you know, I think equally apply, you know, if you study me, you know, uh, my racial identity, I think you need to put your assumption about my category. Um, you know, you may, you may think, you know, I'm Asian, but you have to put your categorization aside. Mm-hmm. And then you need to, uh, study how I negotiate, you know, with racial identification. So. So yeah, and for me, that studying temple Buddhism, my entry point is, you know, my own assumption. You know, temple Buddhism a is a religion. Yeah, but you know, after PhD, I realize actually I have to put this, you know, my assumption of temple Buddhism as a religion aside. <laughs> yeah, and and then rather than me framing them as a religion, I just have to study temple Buddhism without, you know, categorizing them. You know, yeah, I already categorize them as a temple Buddhism, but, you know, but I think I, I, I just compromise it, yeah, for the sake of, you know, naming um, these institutions. Then I studied how people in this uh, group negotiate with various identification categories um, and then religion is one of them but there are you know other categories like you know commercial you know um, or other categories such as politics you know they should you know by being religion they shouldn't be political you know they have to negotiate that sort of you know aspect as well um, yeah, also the yeah, kind of very vague, you know, uh, popular assumption about religion. They have to say, you know, um, we are religion, but we are different from what you mean by religion. That sort of way. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, that, that is how how I approached. And then, as I said before, this is this way of looking at the issue. This way of analyzing, you know. Um, human phenomena is very much common in many academic disciplines. So for me, I just simply apply the same approach to um, study, you know, kind of human phenomena, which is conventionally categorized as religion. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I try not to categorize them as religion. I study how they negotiate these conventional categories, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, for me, by not um, using the term religion 
other, you know, uh, category of analysis, we can be more flexible and we can see different dynamics, which would be prevented from, you know, seeing if we are using the category of religion. Yeah. As soon as we, we call, or, you know, in my PhD, because I assumed Buddhism is a religion, I made a kind of unfair judgment, you know, by looking, you know, they are having families, they have to raise income for their family. That activity became not authentic, right? Because of my idea of religion. Right. And that is not fair, you know. And that is my assumption. Um, and then actually that is, you know, that sort of prejudice is they have to negotiate, you see? I got some, you know, review of my book, but I think some people felt quite offended. I think it, this tend to be common response when I, when we actually deconstruct the category religion in religious studies. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm have a sociology background, so kind of, um, I, I'm, yeah, relatively newcomer to this, you know, um, religious studies, but. Even in the you know sociologists of religion, uh, yeah, somehow we, we tend to receive um, sometimes you know slightly negative reaction, sense of resistance. You know, somehow deconstructing religion causes bit of tension. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how how I should describe it, but you know, I I, I felt um, you know some people feel you know some people don't like it. You know, basically, yeah, they don't. Uh, yeah, but I, I think, but you know, as I said before, you know, in the religious studies, I think you know, it, it's yeah, I think it's have to be critical about the term religion. You know, in the same way, you know, women study always, you know, deconstructing, you know, the notion of women. Uh, you know, um, you know, race studies always, you know, deconstruct racial categories. Well, I'm afraid we are just about out of time, but before we wrap up, could you tell us a bit about what you have in the works and what is on the horizon for you? Yeah, just uh, finishing my manuscript at the moment. Uh, hopefully, you know, it will be published uh, in the future. Provisional title is Decolonizing the Modern Myth. My thesis is this fiction of modernity is founded upon religion, secular binary. So when religious study tried to deconstruct religion, it's touched upon really deep, fundamental aspect of how we perceive the world. It, it's a foundation of the fiction of capitalism, yes. foundation of fict- fiction of nation mm-hmm. state, the f- foundation of coloniality, you know, which still continue after the decolonization of you know, many uh, former colonies. So it, it's the foundation of the power structure yeah. of the world. Absolutely. So my next book is actually unveiling, you know, how this religion secular binary mystify uh, modern myth as a uh, factual reality. And also I'm including other modern categories such as politics, mm-hmm. society, culture, you know, those abstractions, how it operates to construct what we think real. Uh, my argument is by deconstructing this religion secular binary, by actually accepting, you know, what we categorize as religion and what we conventionally categorize as secular, 
are both actually, you know, same kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, then I think we we can actually find a better way to dialogue, you know, Absolutely. communicate across you know different cultures. So that was the kind of a theme of my new book. When I start writing my you know um, the category of religion in contemporary Japan, that was my idea behind writing it. And then in my second book, I, I try to write specifically about that you know kind of background mm-hmm. uh, of. My previous book, yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read it, and hopefully, we will be able to have you back to talk about that book when it comes out. Yeah, yes, please. I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to that episode. Here at the Religious Studies Project, we appreciate the different kinds of support you can give. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, where at Project RS. On Instagram, our new account is at Project underscore RS underscore. If you'd like to support us on the website and listen to any of the content from our archives or any of our responses, over 600 pieces of content free available to you. That's religiousstudiesproject.com. If you find that our resources are helpful to you, we really would appreciate your financial support. If you're willing to make a monthly contribution, you can visit patreon.com slash project RS. And on our website, there are other opportunities for offering your financial assistance, including paying through PayPal or other donation options. Until next time, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.